This is an Ion Annapolis bonus podcast. Well, we are sitting upstairs in a place that's probably very familiar to one of us, and uh, we're here with retired Senator John Astle. How are you today? I'm well. I'm well, John. Good. Thanks. It's always good to see you. I think last time we saw you, we were stumbling on Maryland Avenue, and I asked, how did you, how were you liking retirement? And this big old smile came across your face and said, you know, this is just, this is great. I should have done this 30 years ago. Exactly. I, I'm loving it. I'm loving it. I still have my friends, but I no longer have the responsibility and the heartaches of trying to deal with the issues. Well, does the chair at Harry Brown still have your name on it? No, it's at uh, Osteria. There's a booth that has my name on it. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, we are not here to talk uh, specifically about your Senate career or your retirement, actually. Uh, there's some exciting news coming out of your life in that you have a book that is coming out, or actually it's available right now on Amazon, yeah. but you're going to have a book launching release party coming up at the end of March. And we want to talk to you a little bit about the book. It's called Jungle Combat a combat pilot's tape-recorded transcripts from Vietnam, 1968 to 69. So it's about a year, year and a half, I think? 13 months. Okay. And this is something unique because it's not a – it's not an – okay, Gemma Jablonski authored the book based out of transcripts. And you were telling me before we started recording that you had donated them uh, the tapes. And I guess on a cassette tape or – Yeah, cassettes. You know, cassettes. Little cassettes. That they, and they transcribed them. And yeah. this is word for word your story. Um, so it's not an autobiography because you weren't tapping on the typewriter, typewriter. And it is a biography, but it's a really short snippet of those months in Vietnam. 13 of, months, yep. Of your life. I've read not the entire thing, but I've read bits and pieces of it. And it's, it's absolutely fascinating because you, you hear stories, but very rarely do you hear the words. Uh, or, or be able to read the words. For those that are unaware of Senator Astle's career, you spent 30 years in the military, in the Marine Corps. Well, it was kind of broken up. I had 10 years of service as a regular officer, and then I resigned, but I went into the reserves, and I did another 20 years as an active reservist. So I retired on a total of 30 years. In the Marine Corps, you were a presidential pilot for a helicopter. I was. I flew, I flew for Nixon. Uh, you used to pick up broken bodies off the sides of highways here in Maryland for medevacs? I did that. I flew for the Washington Hospital Center, tra their trauma center. And you spent 24 years in the legislature here? Actually, 36. 36? 24 as senator? 24 as senator. 12 in the House. Oh, my word. That's. Um... I did it for the parking. <laughs> Probably not. Probably not. Probably not. A, not, not an unsmart move. That's for sure. As I humped like from three blocks away this morning. But two Purple Hearts. That's correct. Um, Thirty-one different air medals, and I'm sure there's probably a whole whole bunch more because it's. Uh, Let me explain the air medal, if if I may. The air medal became well, in the beginning. It was like the the aviation version of the Bronze Star, but in Vietnam it sort of got bastardized and it became a scorecard. So for every combat mission credits. You got one. So I got um, 31. So that's 620 combat mission credits. Well, 31 air medals, right? 31 air medals. So I got an air medal, and then I, I got the number 31. Okay. <laughs> so anyway. It's, well, that's uh, – uh, so, I mean, that, so that represents 31 combat missions. 620 combat missions. You could do a couple of combat missions a day. A day. Um, you know, the one – thing that really has sort of irritated me about um, Vietnam, and, and this is a, a war that was going on uh, when, I, when I was a child and into uh, actually a young child. So 
uh, is that it's, I don't want to say it's a forgotten war because we certainly know about it. We've got the Vietnam War Memorial in, in Washington, D.C. And the, you know, you see today's people that are enlisted and it's, you know, the people that are coming back from the armies and they've got the made in the cheers and everything else. And that wasn't the case um, when you guys came back. And I say you, meaning you and the, and you know, rest. hundreds of thousands of others that came back from Vietnam. Uh, it wasn't welcome because it was an unwanted war in, in America that we shouldn't have been involved in, uh, which really makes your story that much more compelling. Uh, a lot of people don't talk about what went on down there. And some of it is just re internal repression, I'm sure. And others are, you know, what you saw. I mean, certainly I would think that somebody from a helicopter probably um, didn't see the same thing as the person on the ground. You got these tapes and what, what possessed you to record these tapes as opposed to, you know, a little, little journal or something. Laziness. <clears throat> <laughs> I knew that I wasn't going to sit down and write letters. I just hated to do that. So I took a tape recorder, a cassette recorder, and I would, um, and I, I showed you a picture earlier. I'm lying on my bunk in my underwear talking in the tape recorder about what happened that day. And then I'd send it, when I filled up a tape, I'd send it home to my mother. And so it was like my letter home, only it was a verbal letter. And that's, that's why I did that. I had no sense that those things, I didn't even know my mother would save them. Um, they were in a closet for over 40 years. You even discovered these? Well, my mother, we were moving her to assisted living, and she said, you may want to take these tapes out of the closet. <laughs> so, wow. So I brought them here to Annapolis, and um, they went back in the closet. But what happened, we had a Marine here in town, a famous guy named John Ripley, a retired colonel, mm -hmm. who had some things written about him as well. But he uh, was retired, and he was working at the, the historic branch of the Marine Corps. And I saw him on the street one day, and I said, hey, John, I've got these tapes. He said, oh, that's great, because we have an audio history, and these would be a good addition. So I donated them to the Marine Corps Historical Branch, and they did uh, they digitized the, the magnetic tapes, and they did a transcription, and he gave it back to me. And it went back in the closet. So what happened, I was How long a, ago was this? Uh, it was probably 10 years ago. Oh, wow. And I was in a conversation with a friend of mine who is the sister of uh, Gemma Jablonski, the woman that really put this all together. And I mentioned I, I got this transcription. She said, well, my sister would be interested in looking at that. So I dug out the transcription and I gave it to them. And a couple weeks later, I get a call from uh, Gemma and she said, you know, there's a story here. Uh, a picture of a a young guy that went to war all excited I was going to serve democracy and um, do the right thing, and I come home as a cynical. Yeah. I mean, combat how old veteran. were you when you went to Vietnam? 20, 25. 25? Yeah. I just turned 25. It's it's kind of amazing that you know you come back to the reception that you came back to, and the rest of your career was dedicated to, to public service. One would think you might be a little bit soured on that. <clears throat> no. I, I never, I was just doing what I thought was the right thing. I mean, that's what I was taught as a kid. Well, you know, that's, that's sort of the heart of public service. It doesn't matter whether you're enlisting in the armed services or serving in the Senate or, you know, working for the city as a, uh, as a sanitation worker. Right, right. You're right. It doesn't matter. Wow. Well, the, so these were letters home to mom. That's right. Uh, 
And it's funny, my kids just discovered a um, Alan Sherman tape. Hello, mother. Hello, father. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I briefly had this little, this, this little thing here. Oh, my word. So it's, I mean, they, they started out with, hey, mom, here I am. I'm in. You know. Well, you know, uh, this is a kind of, my brother chastised me about this. Um, the, the tape started when I got to Okinawa. Because okay. that was the first stop before I got to Vietnam. And so I'm, I, I used to take the tape recorder into the men's room. And so I, I say on the tape, well, here I am. I'm sitting in the men's room talking. <laughs> <laughs> and my brother, my brother said, you actually told our mother that? <laughs> well, yeah, I did. <laughs> no secrets in the Astle household, right? That's, that's right. <laughs> Oh, well, tell me about the tapes. I mean, we've got 13 months of them. What, what do they cover? I mean, what, I mean, this is cockpit tapes. This is. Well, no, not necessarily. Well, I mean, obviously you're not. <laughs> hey, we're. But. Yeah. Um, what, what would happen? Um, I, I, I would talk about what was going on. You know, we had this kind of mission today. And today we went out on a medevac and, and this is what it's like. You know, what, what you do when you do on a medevac and. And uh, today we were doing a resupply mission for a battalion that was in the field, and this is what you do. In a, uh, and so there was a lot of talk about that, and uh, this is what I'm flying, and give her a description of the helicopter, and you know, and then telling stories about, um, you know, this is the mission I had today, and it was pretty scary. And man, there's one point where I read my words where I said, "Mom, you remember I told you." When I left home, I, if I ever got in a really, really bad situation, I'd be too busy to be scared. Well, yesterday I learned something. You're never that busy. <laughs> <laughs> what was what was that mission? Do you remember? I do. <laughs> Can you talk about it? Sure. Um, this was my worst day in Vietnam. We were going to do a big lift uh, <clears throat> about 7,000 Marines. We had every helicopter that was available in, in Vietnam. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> it was going to launch out of the airfield that I was stationed at. That morning I had breakfast with a friend of mine, a guy I'd gone to flight school with, a Harvard graduate, you know, and he was a part of the uh, that famous family, the author, I forget the name. Anyway, being Emerson, he was a relative of Ralph Waldo Emerson. Anyway, <clears throat> uh, when we started the mission, uh, the part that our squadron was having to land in had a cloud layer over it, uh, what we called a scud layer. And one of the things that they teach you from the first day in flight school, you don't fly into the clouds if you can't see because you don't know what's inside them. And so here we are. We, we're being told to fly through these. So I came out the bottom. I'm in the last aircraft. We had 12 in our squadron. And we were divided into three, four-plane, what we call divisions. And I came out of the clouds. I had about 300 feet of clearance between the bottom of the cloud and the ground. And I'm doing about 130 knots in a turn. And I see in, in front of me, or off to my right, the first three aircraft in my uh, flight. And the last two are the one in front of us going in the opposite direction. And everybody was shooting their 50 caliber machine guns out the side of the helicopter. So I'm screaming at my crew, cease fire, cease fire, because I didn't want to shoot down, you know, one of my squadron mates. So I get on the ground and we, we drop the Marines off. We take off. We, we got to go back to get another load. In the meantime, all of a sudden, one of the aircraft landed in, uh, 
in a really bad place. And so there's all the screaming on the radio, you know, oh my God, I'm hit, I'm hit, I need the corpsman, I need... And we're listening to this, and, you know, one of the things about the helicopter, on the stick, there was a little button under your index finger. And if you pushed it just a little bit, you talked on the intercom. If you squeezed it all the way, you talked on the radio. Okay. So what it meant... To those listening, these guys talking, they were really terrified because they were squeezing that button. Yeah. And so it was coming out. Anyway, one of the aircraft uh, blew up and uh, a lot of casualties on it. In the meantime, um, we finished our loads and then I went back to the base we were loading out of. And that pretty much finished the lift and the other squadrons left and went back to their particular areas where they were assigned. So we were trying to get in to get the casualties out, but the, the enemy fire was just so bad we couldn't get them in. <clears throat> in the meantime, my squadron commander comes over to me and says, we got a, a recon team that's in trouble and they needed emergency extraction. That's a very dangerous mission, which means that these guys are on the ground. They got bad guys all around them, and they want you to come down and get them. And get them. And so, uh, it's you know, just thinking about it, <clears throat> you get an adrenaline rush. And so I, I had no choice. I flew out, and uh, I called them on the radio. And so what? what's going on? They said, well, <clears throat> we can't accept you right now. We're in hand-to-hand combat with the bad guys, so you're going to have to wait until we get this sorted out. So I flew off a couple of miles, and I orbited, thinking, maybe something will break on my airplane. I have to go there. <laughs> <laughs> so in the meantime, they're running airstrikes, and uh, the gunships, the Hueys, are shooting things up. And eventually, they call me on the radio and say, okay, we're ready. Come get us. So you take a deep breath. And hope for the best, I guess. And hope for the best. Well, <clears throat> I got down, I got them out, and we went back to the, the base that we were operating out of. In the meantime, they'd gotten the casualties out of the aircraft that blew up, and they got the bodies in body bags stacked up, or not stacked, but they were lined up on the next to the runway. And so I'm the, the my, I was the leader in my wing, and he and I were the last two out, and we were going to take the bodies to the morgue. One of the bodies was my good friend that I'd had breakfast with that morning. And I'm not ashamed to tell you, I cried all the way to the morgue because we took him to to the morgue. Um, That was my worst day. And <laughs> during most of it, I was terrified. You know, we hear the hear the stories, but we just don't um, understand. Obviously, this is these are memories that never have left you. Yeah. Um, this is you know tapes or transcripts or books or not. You know, let me just change the subject on something a little more humorous. Okay. <laughs> Uh, you, you mentioned uh, that your father uh, almost got court-martialed uh, mm-hmm. in the Pacific. Um, he was a Marine as well, right. and stealing a Jeep. Well, uh, I told my mother this story. Um, my, my One of my roommates had a friend 
was in the Army, and uh, we got a hold of a Jeep, and we went to the Army supply place, and we were getting stuff that we needed. The Marine Corps, our supply <laughs> system. And I said to my mom, we, I guess technically we were stealing, but we're over, all on one team. <laughs> over here, the, the moral code just doesn't follow the same. So they had it, we needed it, so we took it. And we used it. <laughs> Where did Ace come from? <clears throat> um, when I first went in the Marine Corps, we called everybody by our last name. And so when you've been drinking, Astle can be a difficult name to, to, I can to see that. pronounce <laughs> gracefully. And so we were going out with some girls from Mary Washington College, which was right down the road from Quantico. And one of the guys said, tonight, we're going to call you Astel. And so that way we won't embarrass ourselves. And Astel gradually morphed into Ace, and it and it stuck. And John, quite honestly, today there are guys that don't know I have a first name. <laughs> the mark of a good nickname. That's that's for yeah. sure. I was writing the book, or I mean, working with Gemma to put this together for you. I mean, was this? Did you find it therapeutic? Did you find it challenging? I, it was a little of both. I mean, really challenging. <clears throat> um, because some of the things, there were times when I had to put the transcript aside because it just brought back some of those emotions and just took the scab off, um, the, the scab of 50-some years, and and that was emotional. Uh, and the, the challenge of trying to continue to focus on what I'm supposed to be doing here um, to make this what it is. <clears throat> and. The, the irony to me is that I never, ever intended that this these tapes would ever do anything other than just educate my family on what was going on. Well, life life is ironic. You never know the twists and turns it's it's going to take. Um, you've, you know, I, I, I don't know whether in 1969 you ever saw yourself being a state senator in Maryland. Oh, I didn't. Uh, you know, uh, you I, know. I thought I was going to be a career Marine. Now, there's some times in, in the, the book where I'm saying to my mom, you know, I'm just fed up and I'm going to get out of the Marine Corps just as soon as I can and they'll never get another day's honest work out of me. I mean, now, were, you, were you drafted? No, no. I, you enlisted? Every Marine officer volunteered. No, no Marine officers were drafted. So were you in the Marines prior to the conflict? Yeah. Okay, so you, you enlisted. Well, here's my story. I, I enlisted in the reserves in 1961 and went to Paris Island, Camp Lejeune, and I did six six months of active duty. I came back home. I got into school, and uh, I got into a commissioning program called the Platoon Leader Candidate. That was in the spring of 1962. And so um, I was on the train, so to speak, uh, to get a commission in the Marine Corps, which happened the day I graduated from college, which was in June of 1966. Okay. Now, the Marines went into Vietnam in 65, but I knew when I got commissioned that we, that's were, what it was. we were going to Vietnam. That, that's just every Marine. There were three kinds, those that were there, those that were going, and those that were coming home. coming home. Right. Well, I think that's probably not a whole lot different than the Naval Academy here in, uh, you know, when in 2000 yeah. uh it's like well we know what we know what's what's on the horizon and we need yeah. to figure it out 
you know, as we look at, at your career, which is a remarkable career as a, you know, in service to our country and the armed forces and the Marines as the pilot, as the state senator, as the uh, state delegate for, <laughs> for, a little, for, a, for a little bit, little bit of time. Um, I mean, what, what do you feel is, what are you most proud of, of your life? Or is, is it hard to? Well, it's hard to sort that out. But there were a couple of things, I guess, in the Marine Corps, having been selected to be a pilot for the President of the United States was a pretty big, pretty big deal. Uh, it meant that I was a lot better than I thought I was. You know, it's been one of my problems in life. I, I always think somebody else is better. The other guys in the squadron, they were better pilots than I was. But this guy used to was an uh, enlisted corpsman in the Navy. He retired from the Navy as a captain, so he di- he did okay. But, okay, right. Uh, he was an enlisted corpsman, and he used to fly with with us. And so um, somebody put this paper. He had written an article in a newspaper, and it put it through my door at home. And so I looked at it, and yeah. Okay, guy went to Vietnam. Well, big deal. So did I. He's, he was in the Navy. Well, so were so right. so other so guys. Sort of. and, and he was uh, stationed at Marble Mountain. And then I perked up Marble Mountain while I was there. So I start reading this thing, and he's talking about this pilot. He said, there was this one pilot that we really we really liked. And you went to the flight line. If you drew him as your, as your pilot, you knew you'd won the lottery because you were going to have a good time, but you were going to get the job done because he would go places where others wouldn't. And uh, he said saved a lot of lives, and he was doing the work in the back. Uh, but he, the other, at the at the end of this article, he said something that really touched me. He said, and when we got back to the base and shut down the aircraft, he would come and sit with us in the back and talk to us like we mattered. <clears throat> they, they did. They were no less than I. I was no better than they. Because uh, I needed them to get, I mean, we were a team. Each of us had a role, and we all worked together. <clears throat> the crew chief was just as important as I was because if things were going on in the back, I needed to be able to trust that he was going to take care of, if we, you know, whatever was mechanically going on. I located him after I got this article, and, uh, and I brought it to Mike Miller, and Mike said, I'm going to have this read across the desk, this article. And so I found this guy and brought him up, and he was in the chamber. And so this article is in the Maryland archives. Archives. Awesome. So anyway. And so and the same with politics. Um, I always thought there were people that were better at the job than I was. But um, I found something in, in the political arena that really touched me because I could help make life better for people. I could help them fix problems. And that's that was my that was my deal. I'm the problem guy. The problem solver or the problem guy? Problem a little bit of both. <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends on your perspective. There were people that thought I was the problem guy, but for the, my constituents, I was the problem solver. I t- can I tell you a little story? Absolutely. I had a, a, a guy come to my office one day. Eighty-five year old guy. He lived in the southern part of the district, which is low, uh, in the Chesapeake Bay watershed. And we'd had a, a typhoon come through, or a hurricane. Well, we don't have typhoons. <laughs> a hurricane. Shipped out of the whole Vietnam. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a hurricane had come through, and there was flooding. And, uh, in fact, the downtown Annapolis was flooded, and it was, it was bad. Well, this guy lived in an area that was low, and his house got flooded. 
So they had to move out while the house was repaired. When they moved back in, the tax assessor came and said, I'm going to have to reassess your house, which meant he was going to lose his his uh, tax credit, uh, old people's t- – not, not – not, uh, whatever they call that tax credit, if you've homestead, right, the homestead the tax, tax credit, sure. he was going to lose it. And he said, well, it's still a home. It's just, it's on the same foundation as it was. And he, the guy said, no, no, you, the, the work was done and you moved out and under the law, that's the deal. So the guy came to me and I fixed the problem. I got a bill drafted, which fixed it, uh, got it passed, the governor signed into law. So he and his wife moved back into their home with the homestead tax credit. So that was a uh, something and that's a bill that's that I was, you know, helping people. I mean, I've got a friend of mine whose house just burned down, and she's dislocated for or relocated for another probably 18 months. Yeah. you know. So this bill would, would will help. help her. Yeah. So I'll tell you another one. <clears throat> I helped start the Annapolis 10-mile run. I heard that. Yeah. I was in the first one. Uh, and I won the first one, but there are only seven runners, and they didn't know we were racing. <laughs> but, were there any uh, better runners than you? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, I get a phone call. Now, I'm in the House of Delegates at this time, and I get a phone call from the race director who said, I just got off the phone with the state police, and they tell me we can't have the race. And and I said, why? This is like three weeks out from the race. <laughs> why? And the uh, trooper said well because it's against the law and the guy said i'm an attorney and i've never seen in the maryland code that it's these are against the law and the trooper said well it's not specifically permitted and our interpretation is it's against the law so the guy called me what am i going to do i mean we had guys signed up from all over the country they'd made travel arrangements they'd made lodging arrangements so I said, well, let me see. It just happened I was the vice chairman of the budget subcommittee that had the state police budget. <laughs> who, who, who would have thought? And so I called the superintendent, and I said, what are you doing? You know, you can't, you can't do this. This is why. He said, well, okay, uh, you can have it this year, but no more. I said, okay, that's fine. Now, this is August. <laughs> In January, right at the beginning of the legislative session, there was a bill introduced which made foot races on Maryland roadways legal. <laughs> it specifically permits foot races. And the bill passed, the governor signed it, and so now. Those are, those are some great stories because, I mean, you have had a life of service. Um, and I think that everybody would get a really unique insight into you. I mean, we know – I moved here in 96, okay? So I, I do not know John Astle from anything other than being in the state senate. You know, the one brief run for mayor – <laughs> on this, the, the second run for rare. I know we, we talked about that on our previous podcast, but, um, and that's, you know, I think it's a great insight into the other person. Do you have another book in you? Do you have, are there more tapes out there? No, these are the only tapes I have. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, I've had people say, is there, is there a sequel to this? Well, I, I don't know what I would talk about. And, <clears throat> and if I did, it would be, it would require me to sit down and write. Yeah. And then we go back <clears throat> to that whole lazy thing. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) bring bring in the tape, but uh, yeah, no. Well, I I guess it would you know. Then again, this is a documentary of your time there, as opposed to what you remember, Uh, and and a lot of times there's some differences. Yeah, what I remember is sometimes different from what actually happened. You know, there's another thing I'd just like to throw in. We're sitting here at Harry Brown's in the the room in the front of, of where the bar is. And my political career 
was Spawn at that table right behind me in the corner. Uh, I was talking with some friends one night, and at the time, I wasn't happy with my job. I was a police officer in Baltimore City flying a helicopter for the police department. And uh, one of the guys at the table said, you should run for mayor of Annapolis. You'd be perfect. And I had just enough whiskey. It seemed like a good idea. And so I ran for mayor. That's how it all started. Well, you do have a book launch party coming up here at Harry Brown's. That's correct. And that's on March 29th? That's correct. What time is that at? Four in the afternoon. That would be 1,600 for you military listeners. <laughs> to, uh, i got to do my math, bring my fingers out. <laughs> to uh, 6.30 in the evening. Okay. And the book will be available to purchase here and yes. you'll be able to sign it and do pictures and everything else yeah. like that? Yeah. So on the party, we're going to have – the book right now is available in paperback on paperback. Amazon. That's and right. also you can get it directly from the author, which is authorgemma.com, J-E-M-M-A.com. Are you going hardbound? Yes. Um, you know, I, I, I'm a bookophile. Uh, I love books. And uh, I love hardbound books because I love mm-hmm. to hold the book. Um, my copy of uh, Jungle Combat right now is a soft cover. Okay. <laughs> but I've been marking it up with a magic marker because I'm pulling things out. For I'm giving a speech. I'm, I'm speaking to the Daughters of the American Revolution in, uh, in May, and they want me to talk about the Purple Heart medal and, and my Purple Hearts. And so um, I'm getting ready for that speech using my experiences. But um, hard copy, I mean, a hard copy goes in my bookshelf. That'll, we have a hard copy coming up on the 29th as well? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay, great. So that'll be a uh, first release, I guess. And you're familiar with the layout of Harry Brown's, right? A little bit? A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> for those that don't aren't follow the politics, Harry Brown's is sort of like the uh, antechamber for the uh, legislature, if you That's will. That's correct. We're right across the street, and you can look out the front window, and there's the state house. Are there so. any tunnels going between here and there? No, there no. should be. Though. <laughs> <laughs> Probably should be. Okay, so we don't have a sequel coming up to your tapes because you've it's got not. two. How about a tell-all on the state house? No. <laughs> well, just, just 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 say yes and put the fear of God into them for a, for a little bit. <laughs> so, well, let's go back. Let's go back to uh, to, to Vietnam. Um, you know, another thing. Um, I grew a mustache, and that became my signature. I had a handlebar mustache that was the envy. Well, it's way outside the the grooming regulations of the Marine Corps. But my squadron commander, who, who was a great, great leader, he said to, to all of us, hey, guys, as long as you're doing the work, I don't care. And so I had this – Right. well, we were on a ship, and I, I had the misfortune of passing the Commodore in a, in a passageway, and he saw that mustache. So he immediately grabbed my squadron commander and said, that mustache is out of regulation, and I don't want my sailors <laughs> <laughs> seeing that. And so my, my squadron commander called me and said, uh, they called me Ace. That was my nickname. Okay. Uh, Ace, we got to cut that mustache off. I said, well, okay, Colonel, if you, uh, if you can get the, the uh, flight surgeon to come and, and actually do the surgery, <laughs> we'll, we'll do it. So we had a big, a big deal, and it's in, it's in the book where – uh, <laughs> cut it off. They blindfolded me, and they went to a little ceremony, and then they cut the mustache off <laughs> <laughs> and saved it. And quite honestly, I was looking through some old papers that I had in the attic, and I found the envelope with my mustache in it. Oh, my word. <laughs> so I don't know what, what I'm going to do with it. But that was uh, 
But we, you know, and there's another there's another segment in the book where, and this goes back to some of the things you're talking about about the bitterness that we as as combat veterans experience coming home. I, I'm on the tape, and I said, uh, "Mom, I'm drunk." <laughs> this is the best part of the tape. <laughs> I'm totally drunk, and I'm going to say some things tonight on the tape that I don't think you should share <laughs> with, with anybody outside the family. And so I, I talk about how difficult it's, it's been and the emotions that we, that we go through and the things that we've seen. And, you, you know, and I said, and I'm saying this tonight because I don't want to ever forget how I feel now. And I was afraid I would. Well, I did. But getting back to, to this tape and the books, it's, it's brought back those memories of things that I had sequestered in, deep in my, in my memory bank. So I think that's that's been a good thing. I still remember that I was bitter about the war and I, what they were asking us to do and the dumb decisions that we had to carry out. And uh, there, So, I mean, I mean, there's another thing, and this is, fills in, and I'll take your question. Uh, <clears throat> we flew out to this fire base one day. Uh, we landed and we went into the operations office of the sh- uh, shop to see what we, they want us to do. I'm sitting there, and, and there's a poster on the wall, and it had NVA and VC, and it had numbers after. And then while I'm sitting there, a Marine comes out with another poster and puts it up, and it had all the units that belonged to this place uh, that were in the field fighting around this area, and it had NVA, VC, and had numbers. <laughs> It was the casualty count. It's how many of them did we kill. And it became apparent to me, this is just about numbers. Because we were fighting over the same territory. It you know, wasn't like we take this territory and move on someplace else. We just try to kill all the people, and, and then we didn't. So we had to come back and do it again. It was just over and over and over the same thing. I mean, I mean they're horrible memories you're re- recounting here and in your book through the tapes and everything else. And you've also, you know, apparently kept on some good relationships with some of, you know, some of your fellow service members. I did. Throughout the year. I mean, was there anything in those 13 months in Vietnam uh, that is a, is a good memory for you? I mean, obviously, we live, we've, you've made some lifelong friends. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I met um, a blonde woman. Uh-oh. <laughs> uh she she was a, a German worked in a in a German little hospital that uh, this organization had put up to provide medical care to the Vietnamese and one day um, some of them had come into Da Nang for a funeral some of their people had been killed and so I get a call from the tower they said we got these round eyes out here that need a ride back to uh, Anwa. I said, well, really? I said, yeah, there's a couple of women. One of them's a little blonde. I said, well, tell them. And I told them, what, I, I, I'm going out there. It's 1 o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> and this is the airplane I'm flying. <laughs> so that's how I met her. And then I used to drop in to say hello. And uh, when I did, I would sell my co-pilot. 
leave the aircraft running, and if something bad happens, you take off and leave me. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then um, I went to pick her up because we had a big Christmas party at, at our base. I asked the colonel if I could have an airplane to go pick her up. He said, oh, yeah, okay. Well, the day I was to go, the weather was really bad. And he tried to talk me out of it. But, Colonel, I'm, I'm committed. i got to do this. And we had a guy in the squadron who was a naturalized American. He was formerly a German mm-hmm. and spoke, of course, the language. So I said, Klaus, I need you. I need you as my co-pilot. So, <laughs> so on the way out there, we had to get pretty low to stay under the clouds. And I, and I took some fire, and I got 17 bullet holes in the, in the aircraft. And so I get to the place where they were. And I called her on the phone, and she said, I can't go. You what? I can't go. I said, Klaus, come over here. <laughs> Explain to her that I'm taking her back to Da Nang if I have to take her at gunpoint, but I'm not taking, <laughs> I'm not taking a broken helicopter back. And, and uh, so it turned out she had a friend that wanted to go, and she said, hey, we, that works for us. <laughs> so, <laughs> So we get back to the squadron, and uh, I, first thing I did after I shut down, I took the two women to the colonel at his office, and he's, you know, ingratiating himself. What a wonderful, warm right. guy he is. In the meantime, I said, I got to go sign off the airplane. I'll be back in a few minutes. So I went to maintenance, and I had I had to down it, battle damage. <laughs> and so I get back to the colonel's office, and uh, he he'd established himself as this really wonderful, warm guy. And uh, he looks over. How's your airplane? I said, down. <laughs> he gave me that look. Why? I said, um, would you believe battle damage? And he gave me that look that said, you little shit, if I could get my hands around your throat, I'd strangle you. <laughs> but anyway, uh, and I went to Germany, spent some time afterwards, and then I, the following year brought her here, but it just didn't, it didn't work out. Okay. So. I thought I thought I thought this was going to lead into uh, to the happy the happily ever. <laughs> now the happily ever after. I met my wife in a bar in Annapolis. This is a fact. This bar? Not this bar. It was uh, Red Coach over on King George Street. It's replaced by a condominium. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, it didn't. Uh, her friends told her to stay away from me. I was trouble, and my friends told me uh, not to waste my time. And a year later, we got married, and in this June, we'll celebrate 52 years. Well, here's here's to not listening to either of your friends. <laughs> yeah. like, for 52 years, there's a lesson in there. And we're, we're still sure. trying to make it work. <laughs> that That's for sure. All right, so let's get here to Harry Brown's on March 29th yep. from 4 to 6.30. Uh, grab a cocktail because the cocktails are very good here. Yeah. And uh, come say hi to um, Colonel, maybe Senator, or maybe just old John Astle. John Astle. And... Uh, Get a copy of the book. Now, what's the significance? Why the 29th of March? Because that's Welcome Home Vietnam Veterans Day. How appropriate. How appropriate. So, but another thing just came into my mind because this is what I've been signing when I've been signing books. Um, One of the things that I said in that conversation I gave my parents where I was drunk, I said, you know, I, I got a family at home, a mom and a dad, but I don't have a family of my own. What I... What I have here are my friends, and with my friends, I live or die, and they're the most important thing in my life. And John, that's something that I've carried, and even now, I still look at my friends as very important to me. 
Anyway, and what I've been signing in the book, thanks for being my friend. This has been a bonus podcast from Ion Annapolis. Please visit us at ionanapolis.net. Follow us on Facebook at All Annapolis and on Twitter at Ion Annapolis. And if you haven't subscribed to the Daily News Brief podcast, go for it. And all of your local news will be delivered to your phone, tablet, or smart device by 6 a.m. every Monday through Friday.